Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 19, The Destruction of Sennacherib. The Tyrian kings of the late 7th century BC wore bold names, Ithobaal II, Hiram II, Matan II, that recalled Phoenicia's earlier golden age of wealth, power, and independence. Ironically, these kings are only remembered in the historical record for dutifully providing the tribute demanded by their Assyrian masters. In 729 BC, a new ruler took power in Tyre. His name, Alulaios or Luli, didn't carry the same historical resonance, but his spirit more than made up for it. Around 725 BC, Luli first rebelled against the Assyrian king Shalmaneser V and was rewarded with a long and ultimately unsuccessful siege of Tyre. Some sort of accommodation must have been reached with Sargon II, who is not recorded as conquering the city, but would also have been unlikely to let open defiance stand unchallenged. When Sargon died in battle, King Luli took the opportunity to break the Assyrian grip on the nearby island of Cyprus, home to Phoenicia's colony of Kidion. Looking around him, he saw other local rulers, King Hezekiah of Judah, King Sidka of Ashkelon, the Philistine king of Ekron, and the Nubian pharaoh Shabitku, rising to challenge Assyria's hold on the Levant. He was proud to stand among them, and let it be known that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was no longer welcome in Phoenicia. Which is how it came to be, in 701 BC, that after reasserting control over Babylonia, Neo-Assyrian forces under Sennacherib arrived at the walls of Tyre, demanding the surrender of the rebellious Tyrian king. Even more disheartening, the armies of Assur were supported by a fleet of 60 ships provided by other Phoenician cities that enabled an effective blockade of Tyre by sea. King Luli eventually managed to escape the siege, and flee to the colony of Kidion on Cyprus with his family and retainers. But his reign was the last stab at true Tyrian independence. His successors in Tyre were barely more than puppets, and the banner of Phoenician resistance would soon pass to their sister city of Sidon. But, of course, Sennacherib was just getting started. Sweeping down the Levantine coast, he easily conquered the rebellious Philistine states of Ekron and Ashkelon, installing an Assyrian puppet ruler in the latter. Meanwhile, the pharaoh Shabitku ordered his brother, Taharka, to lead a combined Nubian-Egyptian army into the Levant in support of the general rebellion. Neo-Assyrian forces defeated Taharka's army at the Battle of El Tek and drove their remnants back into Egypt. It was still only 701 BC, and Sennacherib was down to one more item on his to-do list. Three accounts exist of the subsequent Neo-Assyrian assault on the kingdom of Judah, 
the Bible, Sennacherib's palace inscriptions, and the Greek historian Herodotus, writing around 250 years later. There's general agreement that Sennacherib began his assault by destroying 46 Judean cities, including the heavily defended city of Lachish, second only to Jerusalem in power. The taking of Lachish is recorded in minute detail in Sennacherib's palace without rival, providing critical information on Assyrian and Judean military tactics, as well as the composition and dress of the opposing forces. In fact, the distinct dress of Lachish's defenders was matched to later depictions of Sennacherib's bodyguard, showing that at least some had been pressed into the service of their conqueror. These would have been the quote-unquote lucky ones. Other palace carvings show the brutal punishment inflicted on other defenders of Lachish, including a group of Nubian military advisors. Additional scenes depict Sennacherib reviewing the wealth plundered from the city, including the throne and chariots taken from the governor's palace. The Assyrian king also records the forced deportation of 200,000 Judean citizens by this point in the campaign. But the real prize, Jerusalem, still lay ahead. Sennacherib finally arrived at the city gates and proceeded to surround and besiege the Judean capital. In his account, the Assyrian king boasts that King Hezekiah himself I shut up in Jerusalem, his capital city, like a bird in a cage, building towers round the city to hem him in, and raising banks of earth against the gates so as to prevent escape which might be verbal overcompensation for not being able to actually take the city, but anyway. Confronted with this grim reality, King Hezekiah, at least momentarily, lost his nerve. He proclaimed Judah's submission to Assyria and offered to buy Sennacherib off with an enormous ransom of 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, including some precious metals stripped from the doors of the temple. Sennacherib records lifting the siege in response, and things might have ended just there, except for the fact that, in an apparent fit of bad timing, the Egyptians came back on the scene. Undeterred by his earlier defeat, the Nubian prince Taharqa led the remnants of his forces once again into the Levant, in a well-intentioned, if not well-timed or well-executed, attempt to break the siege of Jerusalem. With this new provocation, apparently all bets were off. Sennacherib himself led part of the Assyrian army south to confront the invaders, leaving his Rab Shakeh, translated as vizier or cupbearer, and the bulk of the Assyrian army to resume the siege of Jerusalem and force its surrender. The Rab Shakeh came to the city walls and addressed the defenders in Hebrew, heaping insults on their king and their god. Hezekiah, deeply shaken by this turn of events, went to the temple to pray, supposedly the first time a Judean king had prayed in the temple since the time of Solomon. What happened next is a bit harder to nail down. The Bible records that the angel Gabriel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian troops that very night. So there's that. Herodotus records that a divine disaster, prompted by Taharqa's prayers to Egyptian gods, struck Sennacherib's southern army near Pelusium. According to Sennacherib, everything went totally, totally fine, and he has no idea what you're talking about. 
Any way you slice it, Assyrian forces returned to Nineveh in 701 BC without having captured the city of Jerusalem. King Hezekiah, for his part, was apparently unimpressed with Egypt's support, comparing the kingdom to a broken reed. Snap. Literally. Assuming Sennacherib had not lost 185,000 soldiers, he came out of the experience in pretty great shape. The West had been pacified, he'd plundered enormous amounts of treasure, and he finally had the opportunity to turn his attention back to his favorite pastime, designing and building his ginormous palace without rival. In keeping with Assyrian tradition, the palace was extensively decorated with sculptures, carvings, and royal inscriptions. While most rooms depict the standard subject matter of conquest, submission, and tribute, including, as mentioned earlier, great detail on the capture of Lachish, others provide a wealth of information on other aspects of Assyrian culture. One courtyard scene shows the transportation of an enormous Lamassu statue from quarry to palace, including all of the complicated steps necessary to traverse the intervening terrain. There are also depictions of Assyrian orchards and records of the creation of vast nature preserves stocked with exotic animals. The palace also showcased a new architectural innovation, the column, likely imported from newly conquered provinces in the west, and a large royal garden, which was mirrored by several satellite gardens for use by the citizens of Nineveh. Under Sennacherib, the temples of Nineveh were also restored, and the capital's defenses expanded to include a moat surrounding the city walls. The streets and plazas were also renovated and widened, and a royal road was constructed, crossing a bridge on its approach to the palace, and lined on both sides with decorative stelae. Sennacherib also commissioned the construction of the earliest known aqueduct, to supply water to the palace and city from the Zagros Mountains to the east. A marvel of contemporary construction, the aqueduct was approximately 50 miles long, built of limestone, and included a 30-foot-high section to cross a 1,000-foot-wide valley. Forced labor for all these construction projects was supplied by Cilicians, Philistines, Tyrians, Chaldeans, Arameans, and Manaeans, many captured during Sennacherib's recent Babylonian and Levantine campaigns. Satisfied in his new capital's conversion into the leading metropolis of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, as well as one of the great world cities of its age, Sennacherib decided the time was right to launch a major campaign against the growing power of Elam. In 700 BC, the hand-picked Assyrian puppet king of Babylonia, Bel-Ibni, had, shocker, turned against his masters and entered into armed rebellion, with Chaldean and Elamite support. After capturing and imprisoning Bel-Ibni and his rebel officers, Sennacherib mulled over the long list of failed attempts to manage Babylonia, and realized, to his annoyance, that the only time the country had been truly pacified was when Sargon II had temporarily relocated the Assyrian court to Babylonia. Which, I'm sorry, but I have just built an awesome new palace in Nineveh, so that is just not going to happen. Next best solution? How about sending your son? Your favorite son? 
Well, he probably at least told him that. Anyway, Ashur Nadin Shumi headed south to execute his charge, and Sennacherib went back to working on his palace. Over the next few years, his son did a decent job of managing the unruly kingdom, but was unable to stem the constant tide of Elamite incursions, plots, and general meddling in Babylonia. Finally, in 694 BC, Sennacherib decided enough was enough. Pressing Phoenician and Syrian ships into military service, the Assyrian king had them sail, with the rest of his army, down the Tigris River to the Elamite base on the shore of the Persian Gulf. The Phoenicians were apparently unfamiliar with the tides of the Gulf, which caused a delay in bringing their forces to bear. Regardless, the Assyrian army attacked and soundly defeated a Chaldean army gathered at the Uliah River and proceeded to ravage the nearby Elamite countryside. The main body of Elamite forces were, strangely, absent, but Sennacherib knew that he would soon confront and defeat them as well, dealing a mortal blow to Elamite intrigues in Babylonia. Except, I'm sorry, but this next part is great. It turns out that while the Assyrian king was tromping about in the Gulf, the Elamite army had, surprise, swept into northern Babylonia behind his back and taken control of the entire area. And, cherry on top, they even managed to capture Sennacherib's son, Ashurnadin Shumi, who was hauled off to Asurnosware and never heard from again. In his place, the Elamites installed their own Babylonian puppet king, Nergal Ushazib, on the throne. Man, I don't know if I can even imagine being the messenger giving Sennacherib that batch update. Sennacherib was forced to fight his way back northward through enemy territory, managing to capture several Babylonian cities along the way. In 693 BC, a major battle took place in Nippur that resulted in a Syrian victory and the capture of the Elamite puppet king Nergalu Shazib. Sending the former ruler to Nineveh in chains, Sennacherib then led Neo-Assyrian forces against the Elamite capital of Susa, seeking revenge for his son's abduction. The Elamite king fled to the Zagros Mountains with his army and the coming winter made Assyrian pursuit untenable. One can only imagine the anger-frustration cocktail that Sennacherib was nursing as he was forced to withdraw with his armies back to the Assyrian capital. The next year, the Babylonian power vacuum was filled by Mushazib Marduk, a Chaldean noble who used the remaining wealth of the temple treasury to assemble a broad anti-Assyrian coalition. His efforts culminated in the 691 BC Battle of Halule, where Sennacherib faced off against the Babylonian usurper, Mushazib Marduk, the Elamite king, Humban Nemena, and an alliance of Chaldeans, Elamites, Babylonians, Aramaeans, and tribes recruited from the Zagros Mountains. The defensive coalition held, and the Assyrians were unable to recapture Babylonia. Sennacherib ordered a second round of his anger-frustration cocktail and made plans for an even more tenacious Babylonian campaign the following year. In 690 BC, the Assyrian king turned his laser-like focus upon the near-perpetual object of his frustration and rage, the ancient city of Babylon. 
The death of the Elamite king, Humban-Namena, the previous year, had robbed the current Babylonian regime of its greatest ally. Neo-Assyrian forces surrounded the city, trapping the Chaldean usurper, Mushezib Marduk, within its walls. A year passed, and the city held, but any attempts to relieve the siege were unsuccessful. Sennacherib was patient. The city of Arpad, after all, had held out for three years, and had caused nowhere near as much trouble to Tiglath-Pileser III as Babylon had to Sennacherib. Regardless, the old Assyrian king had waited outside its walls, mulling over the punishments that would eventually repay its defiance. As it turned out, 15 months was all that Babylon needed. What happened when the city finally fell? Well, we can be pretty sure that Mushezib Marduk was killed. For the rest, let's turn things over to Sennacherib. The city and its houses, from its foundations to its walls, I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire. The wall and outer wall, temple tower of brick and earth, temples and gods, as many as there were, I raised and dumped into the Aratu Canal. Through the midst of the city I dug canals, flooded its site with water, and the very foundations thereof I destroyed. I made its destruction more complete than by a flood." that in days to come the site of the city, its temples, and gods might not be remembered, I completely blotted it out with floods of water and made it like a meadow. Well, yeah, except not quite. Those of you reading ahead know that the Neo-Babylonian Empire, centered on the city of Babylon, is still coming down the pike, and I doubt they began their reconstruction effort from that totally flat meadow where the city of Babylon used to stand. But it was, no doubt, really, really bad. Orders of magnitude worse than the ancient capital had ever experienced. The flooding, raising, looting, and mass deportations took a devastating toll. And for at least the next several years, the city was entirely deserted. Sennacherib had last gotten his revenge for the handing over of his son, the distraction from his building projects, and, above all, the repeated Babylonian defiance to the will of Assur. As it turned out, back in Assyria, the destruction of Babylon was not a popular act. Within the corridors of power, whispers began to be heard of a king so blind in his rage that he had recklessly destroyed one of the great cities of Mesopotamia, founded by no less a figure than Sargon of Akkad, and heir to the Ur-culture, literally, of the entire region, the Sumerians. Even worse, Sennacherib had gone out of his way to plunder and defile the temples of Babylon's ancient and powerful gods. If, as was commonly believed, these gods were but aspects of the one true god, had the king not committed an unforgivable offense against Assur as well? As if this weren't enough, Sennacherib's popularity was further eroded by Neo-Assyrian losses in another quarter. Sargon II's conquest of Urartu, a generation before, had been both thorough and devastating, and the Assyrians had believed their northeastern border permanently secured. However, Sennacherib's preoccupation with southern and western Assyrian holdings had enabled the Urartians, under their new king, Argishti II, to reconstitute their military and drive the Assyrians back across the pre-war border. 
With unexpected speed and force, Argishti's armies reconquered all the major cities and towns around Lake Urmia, including the former Urartian religious capital of Musasir. Then they plunged deep into the Assyrian heartland, and were soon within striking distance of the old Assyrian capital of Nimrud, on the Tigris River. With Assyrian forces possibly depleted from the recent Babylonian campaigns, Sennacherib was forced to accept a settlement that ceded large tracts of territory north of the Tigris to King Argishti II. In Urartu, the resulting peace led to a second golden age of economic prosperity that would last through the reigns of both King Argishti and his son and heir, King Rusa II. It also enabled Argishti to expand Urartian holdings further eastward, as far as modern Azerbaijan. Back in Nineveh, the agreement was yet another nail in the coffin of the Assyrian king. To those in power, it was easy to draw the through line from the king's defilement of the temples of Babylon to the resulting loss of Assyrian power and prestige. Something had to be done, but what and who would do it? In the end, the solution came, as it often did in Assyrian politics, from within the palace walls. Over the entire existence of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, few issues had been as problematic as the nature of royal succession. By Assyrian tradition, a king was supposed to choose for his successor whichever son he believed would make the best king not the eldest, as was often the case in other periods or cultures, but the best. If you can imagine a more perfect formula for sibling rivalry and corrosive malice, I'd love to hear it. Following the Elamite kidnapping of his eldest son, Ashurnadin Shumi, Sennacherib jumped over the next few in line and chose his youngest son, Esarhaddon, as his designated heir. Esarhaddon's original Akkadian name, Ashur-Ahe-Adina, translated to Asur has given me a brother. Yeah, as it turns out, he probably gave you a few too many. In order to protect the crown prince from his slighted siblings, Esarhaddon was raised in exile at an unknown location somewhere in southeastern Anatolia, probably one of Sennacherib's smarter moves. Whether the direct cause was his desecration of Babylon, the failure to capture Jerusalem, the loss of Urartian territory, or making an unpopular succession pick, Sennacherib finally met his end in 681 BC. The apocryphal story, which is too fun not to tell, goes like this. While Sennacherib was praying in a temple, his elder sons, Ardi Molishi and Sherezer, toppled a giant stone Lamassu on top of him crushing him to death. When the news reached Esarhaddon, who was off-campaigning in the Caucasus Mountains, he returned to Nineveh in a series of forced marches and launched a civil war against his murdering brothers. The conflict was brief and ended with the flight of the two brothers from Assyria and the ascension of Esarhaddon to the throne. Wanting to start his rule off on the right foot, Esarhaddon immediately ordered the reconstruction of the city of Babylon, particularly its temples, and most particularly the Esagila, or Temple of Marduk. The statues of Babylonian gods, looted by his father's armies, were returned to their places of honor, and Babylonian deportees were allowed to return home to repopulate the city. 
While his predecessors had introduced the concept of dual Assyrian kingship, Esarhaddon wanted to truly unify the two kingdoms into a single state, the new core territory of an even greater Neo-Assyrian empire. So we can all wish him best of luck with that. Of course, Esarhaddon didn't want to be accused of showing favoritism, so he also ordered the reconstruction of the Ashara temple in Assur. Two years into his reign, the home front had finally settled down enough that Esarhaddon could turn his attention to pressing military matters. His first challenge, a minor Elamite rebellion in southern Babylonia, had been put down with relative ease, but troubling reports soon arrived from another quarter. The Sumerians, the same northern steppe tribe who had killed his grandfather, Sargon II, in battle, had crossed the Taurus Mountains and were harassing Assyrian colonies in Cilicia. Worse, they were joined by the Scythians, an even more powerful tribe, who had originally driven the Sumerians from their northern homeland. In 679 BC, Esarhaddon led Neo-Assyrian forces westward to combat this joint menace. Esarhaddon's armies were victorious in the engagement, and the steppe tribes were driven farther westward into Anatolia, which was really unfortunate for the Phrygians, who just happened to lie right in their path. The Phrygians were, at least nominally, Assyrian allies, and had been since the time of Sargon II, but Esarhaddon was either unable or unwilling to render them aid. Over the next several years, the northern raiders looted and pillaged freely across the Anatolian countryside. In 676 BC, they finally sacked the Phrygian capital of Gordium and burned it to the ground. The aged Phrygian king, Meti, or Midas, was so distraught over the destruction that he apparently committed suicide by drinking bull's blood. The Phrygian kingdom would never recover from the blow. In 677 BC, Esarhaddon was off to the coast to put down a rebellion by two rulers, Abdi Milkuti, the king of Sidon, and a prince of Lebanon named Sanduari. Sidon was besieged, and after three years, apparently the magic number for Assyrian sieges, it finally fell. The Sidonian king tried to escape by boat, but according to Esarhaddon, was pulled out of the sea like a fish. Both rebel kings were decapitated, and, just so you don't think the Assyrians have lost it, they forced local nobles to wear the king's heads on chains around their necks as they were paraded through the streets of Nineveh. As recorded by Esarhaddon, Sidon's plunder included gold, silver, precious stones, elephant hides, ivory, maple, and boxwood, and garments of brightly colored wool and linen. In a generous mood, the Assyrian king passed a share of the plunder to the local puppet ruler of neighboring Tyre, Baal I. Esarhaddon also took away the Sidonian king's wife, his children, his courtiers, and his people from far and near, which were countless. The city of Sidon was tore up and cast into the sea, its walls and its foundations. Later in his reign, the Assyrian king had the city rebuilt as Kar Ashuraha Edina, the harbor of Esarhaddon. The following year, it was back to the Taurus Mountains to deal with the Scythians and Manaeans, then off to the Zagros Mountains to deal with the Medes. 
Esar Haddon also arranged the political marriage between one of his daughters and a Scythian prince, in an attempt to improve relations with the nomads. The next year, he led Neo-Assyrian forces against the Syro-Hittite city of Malid, and into the land of Bazu, modern Qatar. That same year, 675 BC, Esarhaddon embarked upon the series of campaigns that would dominate the remainder of his rule, against Egypt. Taharqa, the young prince who had led Egyptian forces at the Battle of El Tek, had become pharaoh in 690 BC upon the death of his brother, Shebitku. The years that followed had been prosperous ones for Egypt, driven by internal unity, stable frontiers, and large harvests from abundant rainfall. Taharqa had channeled this prosperity into a vast building program in both Egypt and Nubia that included renovating the temples of Amun at both Karnak and Jebel Barkal. He also resurrected, and greatly expanded, the abandoned temple of Amun at Kawa, which had been founded 700 years earlier during the reign of Amenhotep III. But the pharaoh's attention to construction projects didn't come at the expense of military preparations. When Esarhaddon's forces first invaded Egypt in 675 BC, the pharaoh's armies were strong enough to repulse them. A second Assyrian raid in 673 BC was also unsuccessful. That same year, Esarhaddon was compelled to lead Neo-Assyrian forces back northward against an old foe, Urartu. Recovered from the ravages of Sargon II and the Sumerians, and emboldened by the settlement forced upon Sennacherib, the new king, Rusa II, had returned to the old Urartian pastime of challenging Assyria's northern borders. Esarhaddon led the armies of Assur into battle against Rusa's forces, but the outcome was inconclusive. In 672 BC, another assault against Taharqa's Egypt was postponed by domestic matters. Over the past decade of his rule, Esarhaddon had soured on the prospect of a unified Assyrian-Babylonian empire. He had instead named his eldest son, Sinadina Apla, as his successor in Nineveh, and installed his second son, Shamashum Ukan, as ruler of Babylonia. However, when Sinadina Apla suddenly died in 672 BC, Esarhaddon decided to name his younger son, Ashurbanipal, as crown prince in Nineveh. This was apparently not a popular choice, with either the royal court or the Assyrian priesthood. As an Assyrian royal, Ashurbanipal had been trained in the usual skills of horsemanship, hunting, chariotry, soldiery, and palace decorum. However, since he was not expected to be heir to the throne, Ashurbanipal had also been allowed to indulge in more scholarly pursuits, including divination, mathematics, and linguistics, and would later take great pride in being the only Assyrian ruler who could both read and write. Despite this well-rounded education, Ashurbanipal's intellectual pursuits were apparently held as a black mark against him. Esarhaddon was forced to secure agreements with both the royal court and foreign vassals that, should he die, they would recognize the succession of Ashurbanipal as king of Assyria, along with Shamashum Ukin as king of Babylon. 
With domestic matters resolved, at least for the moment, Esarhaddon was finally ready to wage total war against Egypt. In 671 BC, Neo-Assyrian forces crossed the Sinai Desert, overcame Taharqa's resistance, and forced their way into the Nile Delta. The first successful invasion from this quarter since the Sea Peoples 500 years previous. Esarhaddon's armies quickly captured the symbolic former capital of Memphis, the first truly foreign power to do so, not counting the Libyans and Nubians, since the Hyksos invasion of a thousand years before. For Egypt, it was an earth-shattering blow, but it would certainly not be the last. The pharaoh Taharqa fled south, to the relative safety of Thebes, but most of his family was captured in the fall of Memphis. In the pharaoh's absence, Esarhaddon consolidated Neo-Assyrian control over the delta and proclaimed himself the king of Egypt and Cush. He then returned to Nineveh, taking with him the vast treasures he had looted from the region, along with numerous Egyptian and Nubian captives. He left behind a victory stele, depicting Taharqa's young son, Ushankuru, in bondage, and a new Assyrian puppet ruler, a local prince of the delta city of Sais named Neko. With Assyrian backing, Neko declared himself the pharaoh Neko I of the 26th Egyptian ruling dynasty, and took over management of Esarhaddon's recently conquered Egyptian territories. Egypt quickly proved as unmanageable as Babylonia, and broke into open revolt almost immediately after Esarhaddon's departure. The Assyrian king sent one of his main generals, Shah Nabushu, to pacify the region, but it soon became clear that Esarhaddon would have to intervene directly. A second major Egyptian campaign was launched in 669 BC. As Neo-Assyrian forces approached the frontier, Esarhaddon suddenly died. With his loss, the major projects of his 12-year reign, the conquest of Egypt and the stabilization of Babylonia, now fell to his young son, the crown prince Ashurbanipal. Next episode, we'll cover the early reign of Ashurbanipal, the last great ruler of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Over the next few decades, he will find himself leading the armies of Assur against growing threats to the empire's unipolar dominance of the Near East, chief among them the Elamites and the Medes. But his greatest challenge will come when his older brother, Shamashum-Ukin, takes up the banner of Babylonian independence and launches the two ancient kingdoms into a state of civil war. All this next time on The Ancient World.